welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Ona Hathaway, Professor of International Law and Political Science at Yale University. Ona, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You recently published an article in the Minnesota Law Review called Secrecy's End about the system of classification in the executive branch. Apparently something approaching 50 million documents every year are classified, and you say that this is a problem that's actually been deepening over time. So just to start out here, give us a sense of the scope of the problem of overclassification. Yeah, it's it's a really immense problem. Um, and, and I discovered this, I should say, um, or I began to understand how extensive our system of classification is when I spent a year working at the Pentagon. Um, and I had top secret, um, special compartmented information clearance and saw, you know, lots of material that was classified top secret and secret. And a lot of the stuff that I saw um, just struck me as pretty unremarkable. Um, and so that was the beginning of my understanding that that we classify a huge amount of material that that you know, it's kind of obvious. You know, when I first got top secret clearance, I thought, oh, now I'm going to get all the great secrets and all these things nobody else knows. And the truth is, there's a lot of stuff that's marked top secret or secret that that is not all that secret. Um, and so that was my first inkling that there was that there was something um, interesting going on or, or at least, you know, potentially problematic in terms of how much is classified. When I left the Pentagon and just started investigating this a little bit and digging into the data, I discovered that my experience was not at all unusual and that it's clear that we classify around 50 million documents a year. Um, and that number has just been going up and up and up and up. And meanwhile, we declassify very little. And so not only are we classifying a lot of documents every year, but the edifice of documents that are classified continues to grow because we're not declassifying at the same rate we're classifying. And so there's a huge amount of information that the government is trying to keep secret, um, much of which doesn't really need to be kept secret. This is by no means at the top of the public agenda, but at the same time, as you point out in the article, this isn't even terribly controversial. You write that, quote, nearly everyone agrees that there's too much information classified by the government and that this has been acknowledged by a lot of people that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You know, people from Michael Hayden to John Kerry to Donald Rumsfeld, they all basically have acknowledged this and, and they're not exactly champions of transparency. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you talk to anybody who's had access to classified information and to them, it's just completely obvious that we classify way too much, that a lot of the stuff that they see um, or saw when they had access to classified information didn't really need to be classified. And when Congress has looked at this, Congress has concluded that way too much is classified. You know, pretty much everybody who looks at it doesn't really have a good defense for why we classify so darn much information. And, you know, to some extent, people might say, well, you know, yeah, it's too bad. We classify too much. And, you know, it's sort of a hassle. But really, what's the big deal? And the problem is that that it's not only that we have to spend a lot of money to keep all these secrets, because, you know, when you create these classified materials, they have to be stored somewhere and they have to be stored in a really careful way and they have to be managed carefully. But it's also that when we have all this classified information, 
um, anyone who knows that information is not really supposed to talk about it. They can be potentially criminally prosecuted for, for talking about it. And almost everyone, and there's about 5 million people with top secret clearance right now, those people and all the people who were previously in those positions can't talk about any of this stuff. And so it really has a uh, has an impact on our democratic discourse and the ability of the American people to know what the government's up to. Yeah, keeping secrets from the public in a democracy is a very serious thing. But uh, you point out that the classification system has been shaped almost entirely by executive orders, essentially presidential decrees and not legislation by Congress. And further, that the primary way violations of this system are prosecuted is by the Espionage Act, a 1917 law that was passed during the war fever and xenophobia of the First World War, which was decades prior to the establishment of this classification system itself. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, as I dug into this, this was in some ways one of the most shocking parts of my investigation, is that almost all of the decisions about classification or the entire system of classification it takes place under a system that's established by executive order. And that began with FDR during the war. He was the one who initiated the idea of, of creating a system of classification, a unified system of classification for all of the federal government that was going to um, apply to all of the all of the different parts of the of the government, not just to individual branches, which previously they had sort of each developed their own policies for classification. And since then, presidents have issued these executive orders that say, you know, here's the kinds of things that have been classified, here's the process for classification, here's the levels of classification, and here's um, how, you know, information is supposed to be managed. And meanwhile, you know, you might say, well, wait a minute, an executive order can only affect people who are federal government employees. Like, how does that have any impact on anybody outside the federal government? And the way that it has an impact outside the federal government is that there's this Espionage Act that you mentioned that was passed during World War One, And it was really, if you look at the rhetoric around it, was very much motivated by anti-Asian sentiment, and in particular anti-Japanese sentiment, and real fears, xenophobic fears about sort of the alien within, the spy within, a lot of which was just fundamentally misplaced and and completely wrong. And so they passed this act to prohibit spying and 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 getting access to information that you don't have a lawful um, rights to have access to. And that law, with some revisions obviously over the years, is one of the main laws used to enforce this executive order, which is issued by the president without Congress having anything to do with it. And so to me, that was crazy because you have this law that Congress passed well before the executive orders even existed that now are being used to enforce these executive orders. And then meanwhile, Congress itself is even being caught up in this mess because they sometimes want to be able to declassify classified information. For instance, when the Senate investigated the program of torture and wanted to issue a report that included material that had been classified. They were basically told they couldn't. They couldn't issue this. They couldn't issue this report on torture because it included classified information, and the executive branch was the only one that could make the decision about whether to declassify it, and that staff could potentially be criminally prosecuted for putting that information out there. So, it really creates this conundrum and and something that's 
really at odds with our idea of what a democratic system ought to look like. We'll come back to that Senate Intel Committee report soon, but first, something about the how of, of this classification system. Officials determine how to classify something according to language like unauthorized releases could be expected to cause grave damage or harm and so on. And from what I know about how policymakers talk, they don't necessarily have the best barometers about what could cause grave harm or damage in that sense. Explain who decides what information is classified and according to what standards and also all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's there's kind of two groups of people who can make decisions to classify material. So there's a group that are um, original classification authorities. So they're the ones who can make some initial decisions about certain kinds of information that has to be classified. And then there's a second group, which is um, derivative classification authorities. So people who have access can make derivative classification decisions. So that is anything that derives from information that was originally classified is derivative classification. So just to give my own experience, I um, had the ability to do derivative classification when I was working at the Pentagon. So that meant if I was working with material that was classified um, and I was, say, writing a legal memo that included some classified facts in it, um, I would classify that memo um, at at least at the level um, that the information that I was using in my memo um, was classified at. So if I was basing it on a top secret um, briefing that I'd had, then my memo had to be top secret. But it's also the case that when you're making decisions like this and you're somebody who's working in the government who has derivative classification authority, there are a lot more people with derivative classification authority than original classification authority. There's millions of people with derivative classification authority, a fairly small number of people with original classification authority. When you're making that decision, you're somebody sitting at the desk. You have to make the choice about how you're going to classify this document you're about to write. The safe thing is always to ratchet it up to the highest possible level. So the safe thing, you, you're, you're at least in my office, you were never going to get in trouble for, for putting something at the highest level. The only way in which you could get in trouble is if you put something as unclassified or classified it too low. You put it in the secret system, it really should have been top secret. You really could get in some serious trouble for that. But if I took something that should be secret and put it in the top secret system, or I took something that was uncla- should be unclassified and put it in the secret system, there was very little penalty, or there wasn't actually any penalty at all. It wasn't really any disincentive for doing that. Moreover, when you have access to different levels of classification, you're literally on separate sets of computers. So when I'm doing an unclassified document, I'm on one computer. When I'm doing a secret document, I'm another computer. And when I'm on top secret document, I'm on another computer. And they're only linked to other computers in that same system. So my top secret computers only link to other top secret computers. Secret computers only link to other secret ones. And the unclassifieds only link to other unclassified ones. So moving documents across these systems is extremely difficult. So you did realize you have to include a top secret fact in a document you were writing at the secret level and you need to move it up. You have to go through this whole rigmarole. You can't do it yourself. You have to go through this whole rigmarole of sending it through your security office. That's moving it up. Moving it down is even harder um, because if you want to move it from top secret to the secret, that's that's extremely difficult because you have to have them checked to make sure you're not 
inadvertently uh, moving something to a classification level that's inappropriate. And so again, when you're starting to write something, you think, well, I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm going to include, but I might end up wanting to include some stuff that might end up being secret or top secret. It's just safer for me to start writing at the highest level. And so all the incentives run in the direction of higher classification. Now, I understand in some offices, this is not always the same. There's some places, particularly kind of on the front lines, military work, where they have to be working with partners um, who don't have access to classification, classified materials, where there's an incentive to, to classify things at lower levels or to do it on, on an unclassified basis. But there are a lot of offices in the federal government that are like the one that I was working in, where just the incentive structure pushes entirely towards just ratcheting things up. Um, and I think that's at least part of the story here. Yeah. To even expand on that, you pointed out that sometimes someone might classify something at a higher level just so that it gets attention, not necessarily because the information contained in it um, is more sensitive. Uh, there's even some kind of, maybe you can explain this, uh, mathematical model, which suggests that the basic structural features of the system create a kind of unavoidable, I think you called it a gravitational pull yeah. towards higher, higher classification. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the, there's a model that basically shows that when you have a system that has these different levels, like the, the, the top secret system does, just mathematically, it gravitates towards everything being the top level of secrecy. Um, uh, and then you see this, you know, as I mentioned, you see this in practice, both because your incentives, like there's no penalties for classifying something too high and there's penalties for classifying, classifying it too low, but, but also because there are other advantages to pushing it to a higher level. So one advantage of pushing it to a higher level is that people have access to all these different levels. As I mentioned, you've got three different machines you're managing. So you have three different email um, systems. I've got my unclassified system. I've got my secret system. I've got my top secret system. The stuff that's I'm on the unclassified system, I'm getting like parking announcements and like birthday parties and, you know, like the dining hall, you know, the this this dining uh, facility is closed from three to five and you know, like all this kind of junky stuff that really doesn't matter. And so that I'm kind of ignoring. And if I send something to someone on that, chances are they're going to ignore it because they're getting a ton of junk in that email. Even the secret system has a lot of stuff kind of coming over the transom that fills up pretty fast. All the interesting stuff, frankly, is on the top secret side. And so, you know, if you're going to send something that you really want people to respond to quickly and that you want to get people's attention, there's an advantage to sending it the top secret side because people tend to monitor that more closely, in part because the things that are happening there are more interesting and more important um, uh, and because there are fewer people who have access to it. So there's there's a kind of there's a kind of advantage to 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 sending it that way, you know, only certain people at the certain level are going to have access to that information. So there's that. Um, and uh, it's also the case that there's some incentive to circulate material that top secret system if you don't want it to leak, because there are fewer people who have access to that system than do obviously the unclassified or classified at the secret level. And so you also will sometimes see some things circulating. You're like, you know, this doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that really is TS. It may even not be marked TS. But, you know, part of the reason that it's circulating on the on the top secret side is 
you know, they it's a it's something that's politically sensitive um, that doesn't necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily want to have leaked. And it's a way of confining the number of people who potentially can have access. You can't forward anything that comes over the top secret system. You can't forward outside of that system. Only thing you could do, I suppose, is print it out and walk it out. But then that's that is definitely criminally prosecutable offense. So, yeah, so th- there's a lot of there's a lot of incentives, a lot of good reasons for people who have access to all of these systems to want to push it to the highest level. Now, I will say that there's some of this is is um, partially distinctive to the Department of Defense or to offices that have easy access to all of these um, classification systems, because it's it, there's um, people in, in my office and in offices like it at the Department of Defense you know, you have pretty easy access to a SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility, which is what you need to have access to to access top secret material. There are other offices, other agencies that are not where that's not as easy. And so that creates some disincentive to move at the top secret side. You know, the State Department has fewer SCIFs. And so they tend to that that tends to be actually disincentive for doing things at the top secret side because it may be harder for them to access and higher, harder for other people within the agency to access. But again, that itself is an incentive for people who do have access to use it um, because there are fewer people who who can um, who can read that and and get access to that material. So it kind of is it kind of works in both directions. There are some rules in place about declassification. There's certain timelines after which you need to declassify. Uh, there's FOIA requests. President Obama acknowledged some of these problems, and he issued an executive order to create an outfit called the National Declassification Center. But again, and maybe this is just to give people a sense of the scope of the problem, you liken this project to trying to empty a tub with a thimble while the faucet is on full blast. Why are these things that we have in place already insufficient? Yeah, I mean, you know, several presidents have tried to do something about this. So President Clinton um, tried to sort of ratchet back the classification system and create some incentives on the other side. President Obama also has tried to kind of push things back and recognize that there was a problem and create this um, process for declassification. But the problem is they didn't put the resources into it. So there just aren't people, enough people to actually review the materials. And while it's formally a 25-year rule, in my experience, that's observed in the breach. Um, It's pretty unusual for material that's been classified to actually be declassified by the deadline, in part because even when it's been um, formally marked for declassification, generally agencies want to review it before before it is, in fact, declassified. And that just takes uh, hands-on people looking at the documents to make decisions that is not going to be harmful to national security. And again, nobody wants to be one responsible for inadvertently declassifying material that could be harmful to national security. So there's a lot of um, caution around making those decisions. And the thumb is just consistently on the scale of being slower, of declassifying less. And, And they're just declassifying at a rate that's so slow compared to the rate at which we are creating more and more and more classified documents every year, that it's just um, the edifice is growing so fast. And the resources that we've tasked to the job of trying to unwind some of this is just not even close to being up to the task. 
Let's get back to this uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report. They did an investigation into the CIA's post-9-11 detention and torture program. And then from, I think, 2012, when they finished it, to 2014, there was a pretty intense standoff over its release to the public. Talk a little bit about this case and what you think it shows about the classification system. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me about this is that it is, in theory, the Espionage Act that Congress has passed that's being used to enforce the classification rules against Congress itself. So here, the Senate um, had investigated this extraordinarily dangerous and troubling and illegal program of torture the CIA had undertaken um, and had done this extensive process of trying to review how this process, how, how the program of torture had come into place and who was responsible for it and had produced this lengthy report that included all the materials that it had um, put together in the process of, of investigating this torture program. And then it, it wanted to disclose it or at least disclose a summary of that, of that report. And the irony is that it's the CIA, which was the very one that was being investigated and found responsible for engaging in an illegal program of torture that was in the position of making the decision as to whether that information could be declassified um, and made available to the public. And so they had a stranglehold on that very same information that was embarrassing to them. And no big surprise that they didn't want to have that information be made public. And this is not uncommon. It's often the case that when Congress is working on matters, um, it is up to the agencies to decide who gets access to that information, not just whether something can be disclosed to the public, but also even whether members of Congress who are working on these matters get, quote unquote, read into the compartments that are relevant. That's the kind of language for being read into um, compartments at, at certain levels. And so the executive branch um, has a position that it is always the agency that originally classified the material that has control over whether it gets declassified. But that then has this effect of basically giving them the stranglehold over information that might really reflect, reflect badly on them, as was the case in the case of the Senate torture report. And so there, there was this big standoff between Congress um, and the Senate. And eventually, after a a couple of years of this standoff, finally, the Senate managed to get a highly redacted form of the summary of its report um, uh, put out to the public, but only after a member of the Senate effectively kind of called the bluff of the CIA and, and effectively kind of promised to to disclose it, you know, and, and dare them to criminally prosecute her. Um, so, it's uh, it, it was a pretty telling example of how hard it is to give information on something that's a real matter of public concern. That is, how did the U.S. government engage in a program of torture in clear violation of domestic and international law? Like that is the sort of thing the American public deserves to know something about. And the fact that a report like that could be held up for years um, by the very agency that was responsible for it, it is really prob problematic. When it comes to enforcement of violations of this classification system, you point out that the courts pretty much always defer to the executive branch. They always, they don't really scrutinize whether or not something has been properly classified. Uh, why not? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically what they do is they take the Espionage Act, which effectively says that it's criminally prosecutable to release information that might do harm to national security. And they take the fact that something was classified as evidence that um, it would meet that standard. Now, the problem is that things might be improperly classified or something might be classified top secret or secret that you know, really doesn't need to be. And I mentioned um, in the article an example of a top secret Christmas card. You know, I mean, there's like lots of stuff out there that really um, shouldn't be classified secret. But the government basically takes the fact that it has a classification marking or the courts take it, the fact that it has a classification marking as evidence that um, it would do harm to national security to disclose it. And the person who disclosed it should have known that that was the case. But again, because we have so much stuff that's classified and so much stuff that really doesn't, you know, if you look at it, wouldn't do any harm uh, to national security, um, that deference becomes really problematic. And it means that um, the courts are kind of giving up any kind of independent judgment about whether something might do actually do harm to national security. Now, why do they do that? I think they do that in part because that's what courts have been doing. And so there's precedent that's been set. And so they're following the precedent of courts before them. But I think they're also, they feel a little uncomfortable about making decisions about whether something would do harm to national security. They don't feel like they have the capacity to render that judgment. And it's easier easier to defer to the executive branch on that matter. But again, then that just gives the executive branch such an incredible amount of power And I think the courts sometimes underestimate their own capacity to make these judgments. Um, But but I think that that's, you know, explaining why I think that's why I think they just prefer courts don't trust their own judgment on these matters. And so therefore are willing to defer to classification. And, And frankly, in many cases, they haven't worked with classified material enough to have a good sense that actually the fact that something has a classification marking really doesn't tell you much at all about what impact it would have on national security if it was disclosed. There's also a problem with selective enforcement. So really, I think if if anyone is out there who is reading the top three newspapers, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, um, someone on the national security beat is probably grabbing a quote or a piece of information from some anonymous source uh, that includes classified information. And this is a daily occurrence. It's, it's a matter of routine. Um, but then somewhere along the line, if someone violates that same rule, um, they can be pursued in a selective way for basically political reasons. This is one of the things that really is troubling about the way the system works is you classify tens of millions of documents a year that include information that's not all that different from what's, you know, publicly available on the internet, on a, you know, that you could read yourself in a, in a, in a story on the internet. Um, and then, um, and then subject everyone who has access to that information potentially to criminal prosecution if they disclose that information. Um, and sometimes they leak stuff knowing that it's classified, you know, and they call a reporter or they have a conversation with a reporter or they know that what they're doing is disclosing information that they shouldn't. But sometimes, you know, formally, if you look at the way the Espionage Act is written, if you talk about something that you read in a top secret document, but you also read in the New York Times that morning 
and you have clearance into that program, and then you talk to somebody who doesn't have clearance into that program about that same material, in theory, you could be prosecuted. So a lot of people who potentially are subject to criminal prosecution. And whenever you have a law like this, where there are so, so, so many people who are potentially swept within the ambit of the of the criminal um, code and potentially could be subject to criminal prosecution, there's a real danger that it might um, lead to selective prosecution, political prosecution. Some of these leaks that are happening when people know that they're disclosing classified information they're happening with a wink and a nod from political actors because actually they're trying to shape the narrative. And the whole point of it is is to try to you know plant information with with uh, reporters in order to shape the narrative in a way that's supportive of the of the um, agency's position. And so far from being disfavored, it's favored. But then if somebody says something that is counter to that narrative, they potentially are more likely to be subject to prosecution. So it, it just opens that door um, to the possibility that people could be um, prosecuted who, you know, who really don't deserve it any more than the hundreds of thousands of other people who did the same thing, but just, uh, you know, were unlucky enough to be on the receiving end of an arrest warrant. Yeah, the point you make about selective leaks of information is important in addition to the selective enforcement of, of uh, violations because they can really manipulate public perceptions. You use very stark language in the piece about how this is a genuine threat to our democracy. How so? Yeah, I think that it's a genuine threat because it opens the door to um, allowing the government to decide that it's going to declassify certain information that's favorable to a certain narrative and classify other information that's not favorable to that narrative. And, um, and that really affects the ability of democracy to work. Like democracy to work requires information about what government's actually up to. So just to give one example that I give in the article, when Gina Haspel was up for director of the CIA, some information that was favorable was declassified about her time in the CIA and her directorship and sort of people who were willing to say favorable things about um, about the work that she had done were sort of authorized to speak about matters that, that might have otherwise been classified. And then meanwhile, questions around to what extent she had any involvement in the torture program at a site that she had spent some time overseeing was continued to be classified. And so Members of Congress couldn't ask information about that. The public didn't really know anything about it. And so that really shapes the narrative in a way that that doesn't give members of Congress the information that they deserve to have to make a decision about whether uh, to support her as a CIA director and doesn't give the members of the public the information that they need to make decisions about, um, you know, whether their public representatives are, are representing them in an appropriate way. So with... Uh... In, in the national security space, if you run up a, on a question like this where um, doing too much uh, sort of uh, threatens or undermines democracy, the, the other side will say, well, uh, this is what's needed in order for us not to be uh, threatened and at risk in, in the realm of national security. But you argue that this system of overclassification also undermines our national security per se. Explain that a bit. Yeah, it, I think it undermines our national security in a number of ways. Um, one, I think, unappreciated way in which it undermines our national security is that it 
closes members of con- members of the government off from um, conversation with experts outside of government or even in government who aren't cleared into particular programs. And so when they're making decisions about government policy um, and decisions about, um, uh, you know, might be form of foreign policy decision or the like, they can't necessarily speak to the experts who would be as useful to them to help them make the right kinds of decisions um, uh, that that would really be best for the c- country and the national interest. Um, it's also the case that when we keep so many secrets, you know, we keep 50 million new documents every year, we create this huge system that's trying to keep all these secrets, um, uh, which means we have to store all these secrets, we have to manage them all. And um, and that means we have to bring in sometimes private contractors to help us manage this information. That brings more people into the system. There, there's, as I mentioned, around 5 million people who have access to top secret materials. That makes a huge difference in terms of how vulnerable this information really is. Um, and it means that um, there's so much information out there and so many people with access to it that it potentially can be disclosed to our enemies. So I argue we'd be much better off if we actually had a smaller set of information that actually represents the secrets that really matter. And we invested the resources in keeping that material um, more confidential um, and actually be able to better protect the secrets that matter um, rather than trying to protect a whole lot of secrets that really don't. Yeah, that leads to the next question, which is uh, what can the government learn from private business practices about keeping secrets? Yeah. So one thing I was really interested in when I was undertaking this project is, okay, you know, I'm so critical of this, but like what, if not, if not this classification, then what, you know, if if not this system of, of classifying material as confidential secret, top secret, um, you know, then what would we do instead? You know, how does the government, the government obviously does have some secrets that it should keep. Um, what would be an alternative? And I got to thinking about, well, private companies, face a similar kind of issue. I mean, obviously, they're not dealing with issues of national security, although in some cases, defense contractors and like are, uh, but they still have secrets they need to keep. Um, and they might have trade secrets, they might have other kinds of secrets that they want to have kept. So how do they do that? So I spent a little bit of time looking into that. And there's some lessons I think we can learn from what private companies do. They use techniques, some of which are similar to to the government. You know, they use sequestration of information. They limit access to information uh, to certain people. They, you know, they limit, um, they, they do compartmentalize information sometimes, which is part of what the government does as well. They also rely on other kinds of tools like loyalty of their of their employees. They rely on the good judgment of their of their employees to keep these secrets. Um, and they also know not to try to keep the secrets that they don't need to keep um, so that there's more limited information that that they're trying to keep. You know, the formula for Coke is one of the secrets you really need to keep. But there may be a lot of other things that you don't necessarily need to treat as sort of the keys to the kingdom that have to be as heavily protected. And so there are two things I think we learn. We learn that even without a formal classification system, you can still keep secrets. Um, and some of those tools still are available to you. We also learn that um, getting rid of a classification system isn't necessarily going to solve the problem because there are going to be needs to create some of these techniques no matter what. You know, you're still going to want to have administrative penalties for employees who behave 
uh, badly in terms of handling information. That's something that private employers as well as the U.S. government uses. You're still going to have some criminal penalties for really intentional disclosure of, of secrets. Again, that's both the private and public sector have access to that. Um, so there, you're going to limit information flow and access. You know, so these are all things that you're going to be doing either way. And so what I think we ought to think about doing is restricting that system, limiting it, narrowing it so that we're not trying to keep um, these vast hordes of information that, again, in the private sector, they don't try to keep. They try to keep a much narrower set of secrets. Um, and then thinking about how do we keep those secrets and actually keep them effectively and well. Okay. I view national security policies in general as um, being very resistant to change. Uh, I think even presidents have a difficult time turning that ship of states, so to speak. Um, and we've talked about how for anyone with um, a clearance, there's huge incentives to classify and also keep this classification system. It enables them to manipulate things. It enables them to keep secret information that uh, doesn't make them look good. Uh, so how do you think about shifting the incentive structures and um, pushing forward some kind of reform ideas that might fix this? Yeah, I think that one thing we need to do is just recognize the problem and be a little bit more upfront about about um, confronting it. Um, I I make a set of very concrete reform suggestions. Um, I I ultimately decide or or suggest that kind of throwing the system out altogether isn't the right way forward but that we can make major modifications that would make a big difference. So one that I propose is automatic declassification of all information that's um, more than 10 years old, um, unless uh, it's related to um, nuclear secrets, um, so things that are covered under the Atomic Energy Act, um, or relates to um, uh, intelligence sources that are still alive. Um, and create a default assumption that those things are going to be uh, automatically declassified and allow agencies to challenge that declassification um, uh, so that if they think there's a good reason to keep a secret for longer than that 10 years, that they can make a case and that the board that would make a decision would not just be a, a board made up of executive branch um, employees, but that it would include some people from outside government as well. Um, and the thought here is like, let's flip the default. So the default would be flipped from we're just going to keep everything secret until we de decide to declassify it to we're going to declassify it after 10 years unless you have good reason to keep it secret. And that creates a real incentive for government to actually invest the resources in this process that it needs to actually make those decisions. Because if it's government that wants to make the decision to keep things secret, and if a decision is not made, the default is that it's going to be declassified, then your incentive is to have a system that's up to date and working and keeping up with it, because otherwise that information is just going to be out there. Um, so as opposed to right now, there's just very little incentive um, for government to invest the resources that it needs to make the decisions, because as long as it's not making a decision, things just stay secret, um, which is kind of how it prefers so that's the first thing. The second thing that I would do is is we've got a we've talked about the Espionage Act, which is one of the key criminal statutes. But there's a whole mess of statutes that deal with inadvertent or advertent um, disclosure of classified information. 
And um, among other things, the way the Espionage Act is written, it, it potentially sweeps within its ambit even journalists who are disclosing information in the public interest. And so another set of recommendations I would make is to rationalize, narrow, and clarify the criminal offenses for disclosure of classified information to make it really explicit that journalists who are just doing their jobs and acting in the public interest um, don't fall within its ambit and make clear what kinds of offenses are actually subject to criminal prosecution and which are not. And then a third thing that I would do is that process that I described earlier of how easy it is as an employee to choose to classify something um, at the highest possible level is, is because of the incentives that exist in the in the government, that there's very little incentive to to set things at lower level, to declassify, to write something initially on the unclassified system as opposed to a classified system. And I think we could do more to shift that that incentive structure to create incentives to to um, actually discipline employees who excessively classify material to at the very least notify them if they're out of whack with their co- with their um, colleagues at the similar level. Um, here and and elsewhere, we might be able to be aided by AI and other kind of data collection processes for analyzing kind of who's an outlier, who's excessively classifying material, and whether things are properly or improperly classified. And I think just thinking about how do we shift the structures um, such that there's an incentive to people to think twice before they classify something. It could even be something as simple as right now when you classify a document, there's a little drop down menu and you just you can decide which which one of these kind of entries you put in. Do you put the it's you know the lowest level and it's declassified relatively quickly or do you ratchet it all the way up to the highest possible level? You could include something that if you put it at one of those higher levels that requires you even just to write a very short explanation. You know, just do you want to put this top secret level, you know, longest period of, before it's declassified into the document? You have to explain yourself, even just two or three sentences, create a little bit of friction to making that choice. Even things like that could create incentives for for people to think twice rather than just reflexively put things at the highest level. So I think just thinking more systematically about how to create a system that's more open, where transparency is more of a priority, and where we're recognizing where the source of the problem is coming from and trying to respond to that. One of the through lines in your article is the point that Congress has kind of systematically deferred to the executive branch and kind of skirted its, its responsibilities here. But presumably you envision these types of reforms coming from the legislative branch. So uh, I know this is a tricky question, maybe beyond your remit, but how do you square that circle? It's a great question. You know, this is always the problem. The smart money is always on Congress doing nothing um, and, and not acting and not responding. Some of this stuff could be done by an executive branch on its own, um, though I wouldn't expect that to happen anytime soon. Um, uh, you know, you could have an executive branch decide to invest more resources in declassification, create an AI system for declassification, shift the internal incentive structure such that there are more incentives to classify things at lower levels or to declassify them or not classify them in the first place. So some of this could be done by an executive branch that was committed to values of transparency. But it's true that some of this, like, for instance, reforming the criminal law statutes that relate to this is, is the sort of thing that 
that Congress is going to have to be involved in. Um, and, you know, there's a real question, like, is Congress capable of acting? Is it willing to do something about this? I guess there's reason to think that they might be. Um, they have in the past uh, looked at these issues. I think it is a little bit of a um, lost opportunity that when there was this big confrontation between Congress and the executive branch, that there wasn't an effort to try to do something in response to that, that would have given Congress a little bit more control over the classification system. And I think if we can think about having some proposals in place for the next time something like that happens, that can create a window of opportunity for, for making steps in the right direction. I, I think it's also the case that, that the executive branch is getting to a point where the system is kind of unmanageable, where there's so much information that they have to, to keep control of, um, that, that it's, almost beyond uh, kind of reason for them to be able to manage that information. And so there is a little bit more openness, I think, to the thought of maybe we should reduce this edifice. Maybe we do need to find some ways to to look forward and come up with a system that doesn't entail creating so much classified information. I think once you have, if you had an executive branch on board with these kinds of reforms, it'd be much easier to get Congress on board as well. And I think it's also the case that it's traditionally been framed as a kind of civil liberties issue and not so much as a national security issue. And part of what I'm trying to do with this article is say, this is a national security issue. It's it's not just a, you know, civil liberties issue. It's not just a good governance and democracy issue, although it is those things. But it's also that if you care about national security, this is something you should care about fixing too. To kind of put national security on the reform side of the ledger not um, not let it remain on the anti-reform side of the ledger, whereas where people um, tend to think of it as as lying and make the case that the real national security reasons for wanting to address this problem, not just concerns about democracy, access to the public and the like, which are real and are important, but aren't the only things that matter here. Ona Hathaway, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 